The numbers in the proposed 2021 federal budget are jaw-dropping in their scope. The Liberals unveiled their plan for getting Canadians out of the pandemic and onto the road to recovery, but will it lead to a federal election? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. More than $100 billion in new spending for job creation, business support, and the jewel in the crown, a $30 billion five-year spending plan to invest in a national child care program with the ultimate goal of getting the cost down to $10 a day, modeled a lot like the Quebec current program. Now, the budget is the Liberals' first in more than two years. The NDP has been propping them up this far, and it'll be interesting to see if they'll do it again or trigger an election. Ron Published.Vote question asks, do you expect this federal budget to be passed or will it lead to an election? Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at Unpublished.Vote and have your voice heard. Later on the show, Mustafa Askari from the Institute for Fiscal Studies and Democracy will join us along with Jim Stanford from the Center for Future Work. But first, we're gonna look at the political implications with commentator and former Chief of Staff to Jean Chrétien, Warren Kinsella. And Warren, this budget comes with a lot of spending and considering the pandemic, was there any choice but to open the taps? I don't think so. I just think they pointed the water, you know, they pointed the liquid in the wrong direction. You know, the centerpiece of the budget, as you know, and as you, you just mentioned, was, you know, the child care thing. So 30, you know, I've got a daisy group kind of analysis. We did, you know, $30 billion over five years with $8.3 billion going to support implementation. That all sounds great. But the problem is the Liberal Party and, you know, the, the Conservatives as well, everybody's promised a national child care program over the past few decades. I remember it being promised when I worked on the Hill mm -hmm. and it, it just hasn't happened. You know, and I think it's a mistake for this reason. The one thing that's happened now that we're more than a year into this pandemic is there's a tremendous amount of cynicism about what our political leaders are saying, whether it's on the right or their left. People are fed up, you know, because the information they're getting from their political leaders is contradictory. Wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. This vaccine will work. Now it's unsafe. What it's done is it, it's created a lot of confusion and a lot of cynicism. And as a result, when the centerpiece of your budget is a program that, quite frankly, you failed on in the past, I don't know if there's going to be a lot of confidence on it in the future. You know, there's not much in the way of tax hikes in this budget. Uh, maybe a few boutique things, luxury cars uh, on, on boats, the expensive ones. What happened to the wealth tax when, you know, the wealthy were going to be taking another share? That seemed to disappear here. Yeah, they just went for the symbolic things, so the luxury vehicles and yachts. And I'm not sure people with luxury vehicles and yachts are voting for Justin Trudeau to, to start with. Um, you know, politics, as you know better than me, is all about symbols. It's all about pictures. And so uh, that probably made some sense. It was kind of a, the, the Bernie Sanders move. But you're quite right in terms of going after the so-called, you know, wealthy class, the, you know, the billionaires and the millionaires, which, again, Justin Trudeau's promised to do, you know, many times in his half decade in power. It really hasn't happened. So, again, you know, to me, and I just spent some time talking to um, uh, a psychiatrist who's the head of Mount Sinai's. Uh, research department, uh, the Department of Psychiatry. And I said to him, you know, what is happening with people's attitudes, not just on the right, but on the left? People are turning away from political leaders. And he said, people are fed up. 
they're burnt out, they're confused, they're cynical. So in those circumstances, the messaging you're doing in, in something as important as your budget needs to be concise and believable. And this budget, I don't think, is neither concise nor believable. Warren Kinsella joining us on the Unpublished Cafe as we discuss the 2021 federal budget. And you talk about people being cynical. When you're a political leader and having to deal with cynicism like that, how do you change, change their minds? How do you do that? Empathy. Uh, so for one thing, you know, there's a disconnect that's, that's grown between political leaders on the right and the left and the people they're governing. In the first third of the pandemic, if you look at the public opinion research, people were scared. They were afraid. They were listening to people like Andrew Cuomo and Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau. They were hanging on every one of those press conferences every morning. Second half, if, you know, is second third of it, is it ground on? They were getting more frustrated, a little more angry, and they were starting to notice that even the experts were disagreeing with each other in public. Well, now in the present, you know, third that we're in, 14 or 15 months into this thing, people are fed up. So it's manifesting itself in, you know, anti-lockdown rallies and Aylmer and Kempville and places like that in Vancouver. But you're also seeing people resisting and flouting the law on the so-called progressive side at places like Trinity Bellwoods Park in Toronto and so on. So the political leadership in this country, I think, is losing citizens on the left and the right because this thing is ground on for such a long time. Do the Liberals want an election? Oh, absolutely. You know, there, if you look at all of the polling, if you aggregate them, anybody can do that. You get out your calculator, you know, add them all up and divide them. You know, the Liberals are probably six to seven points ahead, but it's not enough for a majority. You know, PMO was looking at June the 7th or June the 14th for an election, but I think uh, Doug Ford snookered them a little bit when he imposed the Australian style lockdown on Ontario. Like, I don't know how you could possibly drop the writ or engineer the defeat of your government in the middle of a lockdown in your biggest province. It was Nova Scotia or Saskatchewan might be different, but you know, it's pretty hard to argue that people should be answering doors to your candidates and you know uh, participating in an election when there's a lockdown down. So I think that they're kind of hooped on that. It pushes it to October, which probably cynically uh, makes the Liberal caucus happy. A lot of them are newbies. And as you and I know, they get pension because they get six years in October. Oh, I didn't think about that. Now, the NDP has been propping, propping up the Liberals so far. Do you expect them to continue to do that? And if they do, what kind of an impact does that ha have on their base? Yeah, and I'm reading what Jagmeet Singh had to say. He said he was disappointed with the government's decision against wealth taxes, which you just pointed out, and universal basic incomes. He said, you know, it's going to fall on the shoulders of working class families. You know, that Trudeau should have gone after the, the ultra rich, as he put it. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, it's like, well, Jagmeet, you know, you're kind of the boy who cried wolf so many times. Are you going to defeat these guys or not? Are you going to be an opposition party or not? I know the conventional wisdom is the NDP doesn't have money. That's actually no longer true. They've gotten better. Singh used to be terrible at fundraising. He's now gotten better. And then basically, they've eliminated the debt that they had in the election. So money isn't the excuse. I think it's guts. I think it's courage. They're afraid that they're going to lose seats to the bloc and or the liberals. So they're holding off. But I don't think they should. You know, they're they're competitive. The party that's in trouble is the Conservative Party. You know, under O'Toole, 
I could potentially see the conservatives getting less seats than they did on under Andrew Scheer. I could see O'Toole doing worse than Andrew Scheer. Wow. That creates some opportunity for the NDP, you know, the anti-Trudeau vote. Mm-hmm. But so far, Singh hasn't taken advantage of it. Warren, I want to thank you for joining us. Thanks, my friend. Great seeing you again. Warren Kinsella is a political commentator and a former chief of staff to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. Now, as mentioned, this budget comes heavy on spending. Jim Stanford is the director of the Center for Future Work, and he joins us now. And Jim, you're always supportive of big spending. (laughs) But when you do big spending, can you get it back to balance? Hmm. Well, uh, you know, the whole idea that balanced budgets is the ultimate end goal of uh, fiscal policy has kind of gone out the window, Ed, during this uh, during this whole pandemic and resulting recession. Uh, you know, that was kind of a conventional mantra ever since, you know, Paul Martin came in with his hell or high water budget and uh, so, you know, restored so-called fiscal credibility. There's been a huge shift in thinking, uh, not just in Canada, but around the world, uh, that in fact, uh, modest ongoing deficits are not just tolerable, they're actually positive uh, in times when the underlying uh, economy isn't gaining its regular momentum. So uh, the deficit is falling quickly in the forecasts uh, of this new federal budget uh, to even below 2% of GDP within just a couple of years. So. It's not like the giant spending of the pandemic is going to continue. Uh, The government is not in a rush to get to perfect balance. And uh, in my judgment, uh, they don't need to be. The National Child Care Program is is the crown jewel in in this. And a lot of people are looking at at that in terms of job creation. How is that going to create jobs going ahead? Yeah, it's a a very ambitious uh, program that's been set out uh, in the budget, $30 billion uh, over five years. Uh, the goal is to cut childcare fees in half within two years. That's very, uh, very ambitious. And then $10 a day uh, for the whole country uh, by the time the full program is rolled out. Uh, we've done some research, uh, Ed, on the economic implications of universal childcare, and there's a number of things that come into play. First off, there's going to be a lot of jobs created in the childcare industry. You know, I'm the rest of the education sector is an, an important employer. Think of schools and universities and colleges, and uh, exactly the same logic applies here. Uh, we estimate probably around 200,000 people would have to be hired over the next decade uh, if this whole system was going to uh, roll out. Uh, and then associated jobs, getting childcare centers ready. Think about construction and retrofits and supplies and furnishings and Uh, Even, you know, just ongoing services uh, will be, uh, we estimate about 80,000 more jobs. The big number, though, uh, Ed, comes from uh, women's increased participation in the labor force. Because our childcare system is very uh, underdeveloped, only about a third of preschool kids are in formal care of some kind or another. That means parents, mostly with the women, the mothers, uh, end up staying out of the labor market uh, to care for the kids uh, at home or reducing the number of hours that they can work, even if they are working. Uh, They're much more likely to work part-time. And uh, our estimates showed that uh, if you went to a universal system and you got the same results you've seen in other jurisdictions, including in Quebec, uh, where they've had this program for uh, for, uh, a couple of decades now, uh, you could have uh, about three quarters of a million additional women workers joining the labor force. Uh, and then when they're employed, uh, obviously, they're generating more income, more taxes, uh, etc. So put all of those things together and, and uh, it won't happen overnight. But uh, over the years that the program is rolled in, I think it will make a significant difference to Canada's recovery from the pandemic.
not to bring politics and cynicism into the equation yeah, yeah. here, but Jim, we've heard this this promise many times before. Oh, why, why do you think this is going to happen now? Yeah, no, you're you're quite right, and I know uh, all the all the people who've been working hard for childcare and assembling the the evidence about why professional group care is so good for kids and their intellectual development and their socialization and so on. Uh, all of them are just kind of holding their breath because they have seen this uh, before. Uh, I think I think this time, frankly, uh, it it should go ahead. First of all, the feds have put real money on the table here. You know, not just a kind of a, a bit here and a bit there. They they have said they're going to you know become a substantial partner and, and ultimately pay half of the total costs uh, of the national program. And the provinces they don't, they don't have to match this new money. Um, uh, all they have to do is say we're going to be part of this and accept the basic conditions about the the nature of the care. Uh, that's going to be provided. And the provinces uh, fiscally will be big winners from the jobs that are created through this program. Remember, those people are paying taxes to the provincial government as well as the federal government. So, uh, you know, it should be a no-brainer fiscally. There's also been quite a change, I think, in the way that uh, Canadians look at child care. You know, some of this old kind of knee-jerk conservative, you know, kids should be at home with their mom attitude, it just doesn't wash anymore. Most women don't want that. Employers don't want that. The business community is strongly in favor of this uh, because they know it's going to help them attract and retain high-quality women workers. Uh, so I think there's been a shift in the social consensus there. So. Um, I know we've seen uh, Premier Kenny in Alberta already trying to pour cold water on this, but, you know, he's not in the strongest political position at home. And nope. he's been very strongly criticized by business and women across Alberta and say, no, this is a golden opportunity. You and the other premiers have to grab it. Now, there was no pharmacare program in this budget. Do you think that's a missed opportunity? Uh, well, sure. I, you know, there's a lot of other uh, other goals that you know that the Liberals mapped out uh, in in the last election and that they were speaking about uh, that uh, I think we could be moving forward on. Uh, pharmacare, of course, that debate is all tied up now with vaccines and COVID and the role mm -hmm. of the drug companies and so on. So, uh, and of course, a government can't do everything at once. But um, you know, I do think that uh, public pharmacare is, is another economic no-brainer, uh, providing these um, access to drugs, uh, which are a growing share of the total health care budget to people, uh, getting the buying power of government to reduce the costs of these, uh, etc., makes a lot of sense. So maybe, maybe we'll put that one on the uh, black burner for the first post-COVID budget. All right. Jim, I want to thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Ed. Thank you for having me. Jim Stanford is an economist and director of the Center for Future Work. Now, this budget has been suggested could transform our economy, but just throwing money at it won't solve all the problems. There needs to be a roadmap out as well, something the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy has called for. Mustafa Askari is the chief economist for the Institute, and he joins us now. And Mustafa, did the Institute find this budget provided a roadmap out of debt and deficit, or is this the, the thing that you were looking for answers to? Well, I don't think they have a roadmap to, to get out of debt and deficit. I think it's very clear that the budget, at least for now, does not really concern, is not concerned with, uh, with the amount of debt and the sort of continued uh, deficit. Um, I think they're looking at this as a sort of emergency situation that they need to spend money. And uh, that's what they have done in the budget. Hmm. Now, uh, among the... Uh calls from the, from the Institute, detailed spending on COVID expenses. Are we not getting that now? And, and what kind of a concern does that have for you if we're not? Uh, 
I think we are getting uh, a lot more information now. There, there, there is definitely good information in the budget. Uh, and uh, when you go to different federal government websites and it's, it's Canada, you get you get some information. Mm-hmm. I think some of the information that we were requesting before, it was more sort of a granular kind of a micro information on who is getting it, whether it's effective or not. And those things hopefully will come later, whether, whether the whole system was actually effective in delivering what it was supposed to deliver. You know, one of the one of the items that had been talked about going into the budget, but obviously did not make it, was the so-called wealth tax on the uh, the ultra wealthy. Were you surprised that that was not in there? I wasn't surprised. I don't think the government was considering that. I don't. I think it. I don't think it is something that they are looking at. Um, the wealth tax is one of those taxes that is extremely difficult to implement, especially if on a permanent basis. Because what we know is that the, the sort of the behavioral response to a wealth tax would be significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that people who are wealthy and they, they have the means to, to move their assets around, they, they have the means to, to avoid that tax. So if it is a permanent tax, it would be extremely difficult to implement and get a lot of money out of it. Instead, in fact, the PBO, when they did their sort of the estimate of a wealth tax for the, I think for the NDP, uh, I think their estimate was about six to $7 billion of revenue, but that's subject to significant amount of uncertainty and risk. So that's not gonna do actually much in the current context of the, the spending, you know, $400 billion, so. Now uh, there's a digital tax, uh, will that make a difference? Well, the digital tax is something that I think not only the Canadian government, but every other government is looking at, and that's because of the, the way that the, the, the activities work now, it has become, a lot of it has become digitalized, and that would, uh, would have to, something has to be done to make sure that these significantly large companies that provide those kind of services pay the, the right amount of tax. Now, I don't think that digital tax is going gonna, is gonna to bring enough revenue for the government to deal with the, with the current debt and deficit issue. But I think it is something in terms of the fairness of the tax system. Uh, I think it would be something that needs to be done. But again, it's extremely difficult. I mean, they have been talking about this for the past five years with other countries. And we have not yet uh, reached an agreement on how this could be implemented. The OECD is working on it with the G20. They're hoping that this year they're gonna get some agreement. Uh, but again, there is, a, there is sort of resistance from countries like the US and China who actually have the most of the corporations that actually do provide those kind of services. And uh, that that requires a lot of negotiation. And at the end, whether whether we are going to achieve that or not, that that's subject to you know some some uncertainty. But for for now, I think the government has decided to go ahead with with the with the structure that they have chosen. How effective that is going to be, we'll we'll have to see. One one thing that stuck out for me as well was this tax on unproductive use of Canadian housing owned by non-residents. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems like a very broad term. Are, are they looking at foreign ownership of cottages or foreign ownership of homes? Or could maybe cottage owners be caught up in this? I don't think the cottage owner, because this is for non-residents and foreign non-residents. It's not for Canadians. It's not for permanent residents in Canada. So it's for 
somebody who is coming from another country and buying a couple of condos in Toronto or Vancouver for investment. In those kind of things, I think that's what they're they're, uh, targeting. However, what I was surprised at is that they did not provide any kind of information how big that is in Canada. What's the what's the percentage of overall real estate in Canada that that is subject to that tax? And and that's that's important because their their aim is to cool down the, the housing market. But if that portion of the housing market is not very large, then even a tax of one percent is not going to do much. To, to deal with the major problem, which is the only, the only the, the, the sort of the single problem that they are trying to address. Mustafa Skari is joining us in the Unpublished Cafe. He's the chief economist with the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy as we talk about 2021 federal budget or proposed federal budget. And, you know, despite all the spending and the pandemic and the recession, at least uh, according to the Institute, you see federal finances as sustainable in the long term. Why do you feel that way? Well, there is, a, there is a way that we look at the long-term sustainability. Essentially, what it is is that you look at the, the amount of debt relative to the size of the economy, which is the GDP, and we look at that over a long period of time. And that long period of time could be 50 years, 60 years, 70 years. It's a very long period of time. And the reason we do that, and that's not on us, and a lot of countries do that, OECD, IMF, they do that kind of calculation, is to see how over time, when the economy sort of on average is, is growing at its trend rate, and the sort of the finances have, have reached a point where they are sort of growing at, again, at sort of a reasonable rate, and the demographic effects have been worked out through the system because of a long period of time, then we look at how spending and revenues grow over time and how the debt to GDP ratio uh, grows over time. Now in Canada, at the federal level, we do have a sustainable situation in, in, in the sense that the debt to GDP ratio tends to decline over time. I just did the calculation with the current budget in place with all the budget numbers, and we are still in a sustainable situation, meaning that beyond the next 30 years, the debt to GDP ratio in Canada at the federal level actually starts to decline. Now, you may ask why that is the case. It is the case because inherently, the way that the federal spending is structured, there is a downward bias and trends relative to the size of the economy. And the reason is that 60% of the spending in Canada in, at the federal level are transferred to provinces and transferred to people. And those are all formula-based. And they don't grow. They grow less than the GDP. I mean, different parts of it uh, grow at different rate, but overall those grow less than the GDP. So inherently, and the revenues typically grow with the GDP. So over time, you get that gap between the spending and revenues. If if you don't if you don't introduce any new large program, permanent program, that gap sort of opens up, and that's what brings the debt to GDP ratio down, and that's what we say is sustainable. It's not the case at the at the provincial level, but it's the case at the federal level. And and I guess the wild card in being sustainable is interest rates staying where they are. Well, that's correct. If interest rates increase significantly, then you may get into trouble even at the federal level. And, and that's what I, what I was looking at. If we have a 
you have an increase in interest rate about 200 basis points, then you're gonna, you, you may face an unsustainable federal finance situation. Mustafa, I want to thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Mustafa Astari is the chief economist with the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy, and that leads to our unpublished vote question. It asks, whether do you expect a federal budget to be passed or will it lead to a federal election? Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and make your voice heard right now at unpublished.vote. I want to thank our guests for today, Warren Kinsella, political commentator, as well, Jim Stanford is the director of the Center for Future Work, and Mustafa Askari, the chief economist with the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy. And thank you for watching the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.